Welcome in to Price Out the Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Morgan, and here with your other host, Cornelius Swart. How you doing today, man? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? Doing really, really good. We got a special show for him today. Uh, this one's uh, one of the, the shows that I like because we got a chance to record on site. And uh, it was a really, really interesting group you got a chance to speak to. Give us a little bit of a background. Yeah, this podcast is just a live recording of a, a presentation I gave at an event called Turn On. And it was, um, and the event is hosted by a local company called Thousand Watt. And they are a branding and marketing firm that works for some of the biggest real estate brands in the world, including yeah. Berkshire Hathaway, which is Warren wow. Buffett's, um, the real estate wing of Warren Buffett's mega corporation, Berkshire Hathaway. Um, so these are realtors, people in the audience. It's almost like a, like a TED Talk series yeah. where people talk about oh, the magic of the didgeridoo or managing your <laughs> rock star personality. Those things. Yeah. And I mean, some fascinating people talking and realtors come from around the country to do this two-day kind of conference slash you know it's just like a, a good time and uh, Mark Davidson the guy who runs thousand watt invited me to speak to these folks and I was at first I didn't even believe it at second I was like angry I was just like I don't have nothing to say to Berkshire Hathaway <laughs> <laughs> but you know he really He's a very smart guy, guy from Brooklyn, grew up in, in Brooklyn, working class guy. And, um, you know, he's just concerned about gentrification. And so uh, convinced me to go. And, and I um, gave this 20-minute speech, this 20-minute presentation. And uh, we're just going to listen to the, the raw recording, the raw presentation. All right, here it goes. So our next guest is a journalist, documentary filmmaker, and private investigator here in Portland. He recently directed the film Priced Out, 15 Years of Gentrification in Portland, and he's currently producing the Priced Out podcast, which tells stories of gentrification in cities across the country. Please welcome Cornelius Swart. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I think we'll just start out um, with a clip from, from the latest film on gentrification priced out. Michelle Lewis, take one. What, what does the word gentrification mean to you? <laughs> Pain, <laughs> um, loss, grief, the people that are coming here now are completely oblivious to what was. They don't, they don't care to know about what was. I've not yet found any indication that there's something positive associated for black people with gentrification. And they're just tearing apart like stuff that represented our childhood, stuff that was represented home for us. I think when we look at the black community in relationship to gentrification, it's one of those things where there's that saying, if they come for me at night, they'll be coming for you in the morning. Urban growth. Growth in inner cities has the potential 
to be one of the greatest vehicles for individual wealth creation and racial and class integration this country has ever seen. It also has the potential to be the stuff of riots and political backlash that could stifle the housing market for a generation. And folks in this room, more than most Americans, will have a say in what direction we choose to go as a society. And while I'll be um, talking about gentrification, mostly in Portland and in the African-American community, we all know that it's happening all around the country. East Liberty in Pittsburgh, Third Ward in Houston, Hilltop in Tacoma. Um, housing prices, rents are going up, business is good, but traditional residents are often finding themselves priced out of their own communities. And it's not just poor or working class people increasingly, it's middle class people as well. And just so you know about me, I'm, I'm Cornelius, um, and I'm a reporter, but I'm also a gentrifier. And I own commercial property, so I'm, I'm technically a landlord as well. Um, I grew up in Hackensack, New Jersey, a working class suburb of New York. And uh, my dad ran a property management company. And I spent my summers refurbishing apartments, collecting rents, uh, working as a laborer for his developer buddies. Um, so real estate has always been a part of my, part of my life. I, um, I moved to Portland in 95, and I almost became a city planner. But I started work on the first of my two documentaries on gentrification in the African-American communities of Portland's Albina neighborhood. And in 1998, I bought a house in the neighborhood with down payment help from my parents. And um, here's another clip that tells you a little bit what the, what the neighborhood was like. We start our story just before I arrived in the late 1990s in a cluster of north, northeast Portland neighborhoods often called the Albina community. To many outsiders, Albina may have looked depressed, abandoned, even dangerous. But to many living there, it was a community unlike any other in Oregon. Everybody in my neighborhood was black. A neighbor on this side, a neighbor on that side, across the streets. Like, everybody looked like me. You just didn't see white people. In North and Northeast Portland, people would turn their music up and everyone would come out on their porches and almost like have a party. And we knew each other. When you walk outside your front door, you speak. This whole thing of people not knowing their neighbors and not speaking, I'm just like, what is this? It, it was a thriving black community, as, as former residents would describe it. 90%, unbelievable, 90% of the African-American population lived in this neighborhood uh, when I got there in the, um, the mid-90s. And it was a place, um, the way Pastor Donald Frazier, a local pastor, described it, that valued relationships more than the things that could be weighed and measured. Um, it was a place where people, even if they felt, black people, even if they tell me, um, even if they felt hostile, um, hostility or isolation when they went out to the rest of Portland, which even then was the whitest city in America, um, there was always a sense of belonging when they came back to the neighborhood. That said, the neighborhood had problems, many problems. Like most inner cities, years of disinvestment had caused abandonment of properties, 
and that had aggravated crime. In 1990, there were 60 violent crimes per 1,000 residents in Albina. Now, to give you a sense of perspective, in 2016 in Chicago, there were nine violent crimes per 1,000. The sale price for a home at that time in Albina was $30,000. So when new white residents started coming in, businesses, investors started coming in, a lot of the residents that I spoke with welcomed, welcomed their arrival. And the subject of our film, our first film, Northeast Passage, Nikki Williams, was a woman you'll, you'd see in the film, spent her time fighting drug dealers and closing down drug houses on her block. And so when she saw new white residents coming in, fixing up homes, putting in new businesses, she was like, bring it on. It's terrific. And in 2002, when the film was released, this first one, the average sale price of a home was $113,000. In 2016, it was $560,000. Commercial property, this is a corner of Alberta Street and 18th in 1994. Saw significant gains as well. Here it is in 2015. Between those two years, commercial property on the street went up 1,000%. And of course, this is happening all over the country. We're living through an unprecedented urban renaissance right now. And we all, we all know it. cities are being reborn with investment. Walkable neighborhoods are being recreated or created from scratch. This is uh, West Philadelphia around uh, 30th Street Station. Historic properties are being brought back to life. This is um, over the Rhine in Cincinnati, the largest. Somebody from Cincinnati? All right. It's the largest contiguous historic district in the country, or at least that's the claim. Um, Savannah, one of the first uh, fully restored historic cities in the country. Um, and some of the more recent historic restorations, the epic movie palaces that have been recovered from abandonment in downtown Los Angeles. These are all different theaters. But over that period in Albina, During all this investment, home ownership actually declined. A neighborhood that was overwhelmingly renters could not compete in the marketplace that became dominated by home buyers from the suburbs. And as a result, the African American population, it's a map of Albina, African American community is, is uh, represented in the dark rectangles. Over the decades, the, the community was literally wiped off the map declining as much as 90% in some areas. It's classic gentrification. And, and we know how it happened. The system was rigged. Um, we're not going to be over-validating in this, in this speech. Um, we, most of us know the history. A lot of people outside the neighborhood don't know the history. But suburbs over the last half century were largely subsidized. For most of that history, they were segregated um, through zoning, um, through FHA programs that did not lend to African Americans and minorities. So the wealth in suburbia, the people who moved from suburbia into the inner city inherited that wealth that was generated through those subsidies. My inherited wealth came through 
home ownership in the suburbs. Conversely, people in the inner cities were regulated out of the marketplace. They could not participate in the marketplace. And they inherited poverty and all its social ills that go along with it. And it's an ugly history. Most people don't know it who are outside of the community. People in the community obviously know it. Um, people outside the community just know, oh, there used to be a bad neighborhood, and now it's a good neighborhood, I want to live there. Um, which is why when a neighborhood starts to gentrify, the first thing that happens is you rebrand the neighborhood, change the name, distance the history, cover it up. Um, and and it, you know, it's, it may not be consciously done, but what it does is it reinforces that feeling of cultural, ethnic, and historical cleansing and erasure that, and this isn't me preaching, this is me reporting. This is me just relaying to you what hundreds of people have told me around the country over the course of 20 years. Right? Again, I'm, I'm not really opining, I'm really just reporting on this stuff. Um, and so this is particularly galling. Um, here's a clip from our latest film, Priced Out, in which I go back to Nikki Williams 13 years later and ask her, now how do you feel about the changes in your neighborhood? I live in the historic, and I have to say it that way, the historic Mississippi Avenue area. Same place. Same place, but not the same place. I am a full-time plus student. When I first moved here, the only white folks on the block were the gay couple next door. It went from one white occupied household to all white except three. Damn. I don't go down Mississippi Avenue just because it's so damn white. And it's not just that it's white, it's like this, I'm afraid to talk to you, look at you, speak at you kind of white. So when I do go down Mississippi Avenue, I've jokingly said I feel like Moses with a staff in front of me because, you know, <laughs> the waters seem to part, you know? <laughs> oh yeah, my skin is my sin, as usual, <laughs> as usual. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, stores and boutiques and places to shop. You have lots of eateries up and down Mississippi Avenue. We even have an ice cream shop, but who the hell can afford $4 for an ice cream cone for their kid? Yeah, I said it. And it's interesting to me, because it's like a lot of these folks wouldn't have stepped foot over here back in the day. You know, wouldn't have stepped foot over here. Like, where were all y'all when it was time to do the foot patrol? Where were all y'all when it was time to get out here and? and, you know, go toe-to-toe -to -toe and face-to-face -to -face with drug dealers and gangbangers and all of that. That's what's so weird. I live in this community, fought like hell to make it quote-unquote livable, whatever the hell that was redefined to me, and now I don't even deal with it. Are you serious? I am very grateful that they don't have on this sign a bunch of brown-skinned people smiling, looking like they're having the time of their life, because that's one thing I'm, at least they didn't pretend and do that bullshit. They don't even pretend to include people like me. <laughs> I guess what I wanted to see happen is people give a damn about the community that was there, not push everybody the hell out, then come in, build it up, and say now they can't come back. I wanted people to give a fuck about those of us who were there already. He says it better than I can. Um, of course, in Portland and many coastal cities, it, it's gotten much worse than this. 
Uh, it's gone way beyond rebranding a neighborhood or loss of community feeling or neighborliness. In the last five years, every, almost every city on the West Coast has declared itself under a, a housing state of emergency. It's from the Barry reports. Um, we, all, we know what's going on. I mean, it's in baby boomers and millennials fighting over inner city properties, speculative investors, capital fleeing other commodity markets, uh, wide scale abuse of market freedoms, uh, have put many cities in a housing bind. Millions of people, poor, working poor, middle class, are finding themselves or will soon find themselves in the same boat as the former residents of Albino. Now, the good news is that Two years after that last scene was recorded, Nikki sold her house. She actually um, was given a house by Habitat for Humanity, and she sold it for $300,000 and chose to pick up and move to Dallas, Texas in search of uh, a cohesive black community. And that, she had a choice. She had a choice. And economic opportunity gave her that choice. And this is me opining. I think that's the world we want to live in, is where we believe that people have a choice and that economic activity and the marketplace facilitates and amplifies our choices. And that's a great aspiration. And it does occur. And we should feel good about participating in that system. But it doesn't always occur. And in Portland, it's not universally occurring because there has been massive involuntary displacement of working and middle class people throughout the city of all races. And that is causing a massive backlash here. And I don't know um, if everyone here is from Portland, but um, in Portland over the last two years, we've seen a massive wave of legislators getting thrown out of office, new regulations coming in. Um, landlords are now penalized if they raise the rents more than 10%. State legislature is poised to repeal its ban on rent control. And it's not just happening here. It's happening across the country where rent strikes are on the rise. City of DC is being sued in federal court for gentrifying. Um, and we're also seeing some darker things, belligerent, um, sometimes violent protests here in uh, Boyle Heights, which is a Latino neighborhood across the river from downtown Los Angeles where all those lovely theaters were. Um, art galleries moved in, protesters vandalized them, smashed windows, destroyed the artwork, and now the galleries are leaving, moving out. And I can tell you, protesters are watching these things very carefully. So this dark example is what it's like to kill the goose that laid the golden egg. This is what happens when you shoot the last buffalo. And while this is certainly not to be held up, the broader political backlash, it's hard to see that, again, this is my opinion, as anything more than a natural reaction, a human reaction to the social disruption and abuses that occur under gentrification. So my point here is that it's in the inherent long-term interest of the industry to see gentrification as something that destroys communities. And for the industry, its agents, its associations, and its lobbyists to work actively to preserve, sustain, and create mixed income communities. 
Now that, that would take some legislation. The free market did not create the situation, and the free market alone cannot solve the problem. These are just suggestions. I don't really know your own markets or your own industry. Um, so, you know, I'm just throwing stuff out there. What I'm really advocating for here is a change in attitude or a greater sense of mindfulness. I think a lot of the speakers here tonight, um, today, talked about mindful practices, talked about mindful living. I've spoken with a, a good number of you. I know that you're thoughtful people. I, I've, everyone I've talked to um, is a responsible person, thinks about you know, what the impact of their decisions are. So I think that's the most important thing as we continue to think that way when we do our daily business, but also when we advocate you know, to our, our political agents um, in the system. Mark asked me to bring up Airbnb as an example. Um, could, I'm doing, working on a story here in Portland where, and this is not on the record yet, but it could be 40% of the Airbnbs in, uh, in Portland are in violation of the, of the laws at a time when we're having a housing crisis, obviously taking units off the market. So just thinking about the way we thread in with all of these aspects. The real estate industry for me is about selling the idea of a home as well as a home. It's about selling the idea of a community, and that makes you the perfect advocates for measures that protect communities against gentrification. It fits in with your brand, and I know that you're all under pressure, tremendous pressure to produce results. Again, I grew up in, I grew up in the industry. And I would say the good news is that everyone I've talked to over the years wants to own a home. Rich, poor, black, white, doesn't matter. It's the American dream. So you guys are, are a force for good. Neighbor, neighbors I talk to don't want, they don't say, I don't want new neighbors. They just say, I don't want to be abused by them. They don't say, stop the investment. They just say, I want to see some benefit from the investment, or at least my community sees some benefit from the investment. And it can be done. This is the Pearl District in Portland here. And it's universally known as a high-end shopping district and residential district, which most people don't know, though, is that it's the largest concentration of regulated affordable housing in the city. The two things can coexist if we want them to. It can happen. So I do think the future is bright. I'm just asking us to see gentrification as a kind of negative industrial byproduct that hurts the long-term health of your industry and creates a negative perception of the industry. So I ask you to cultivate community, to see housing advocates as allies, and um, in the future, please don't, don't rename the neighborhood. Except that one, you can rename that one, that's, that's fine. <laughs> Thank you very much. Cornelius was a little concerned about giving a talk like this to the real estate industry. I assured him that you would appreciate this. Yes. Have you? Yes. Like you get what he's saying, right? That was a great talk. Anybody have any questions for Cornelius? If you're raising your hand, I can't see it, so just ask it out. Yeah.
Right. How does the new... Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I think if you're like advising um, clients, um, I would really ask them to, to say, you know, spend some time just observing the neighborhood, being deferential to your neighbors and just knock on some doors and ask them about the history. I think the, you know, the thing we hear most is like, yeah, people don't look me in the eye, people push past me, I go into a store and they're like, hey, when did you get in the neighborhood? You know, I was like, but I've been here for 40 years. So, so you know, Learning about the history of the neighborhood is the first step. And then deferring, giving people the benefit of the doubt if they are louder than you, maybe they have different tastes than you do. Um, you know, not condemning people for maybe not fitting in with what you think the neighborhood should look like. Um, and then, yeah, just talking to your neighbors. Just talk to them. The oldest ones is the, are the best to start with, you know. There's an there's a expression in this neighborhood, which is, um, you got to respect the old people because fools don't make it that long. <laughs> Anyone else? All right, cool. I give these talks um, um, all the time to realtors. Um, here in Oregon, you can get professional development credit towards your, towards your um, continuing education for your, your broker's license. So, um, yeah, um, feel free to look me up. We love doing screenings. Any local brokers? Oh. Sean, you guys? Oh, right. Uh, PricedOutMovie.com. That'll, that'll tell everything. All right. Thank you very much. Awesome. <laughs>
nice. It would be uncomfortable <laughs> if he didn't say something nice. <laughs> but yeah, it, it it was it was pretty good. I, and the reason why I asked the question from the get go is because of the audience. Mm-hmm. You know, um, a lot of people take advantage of those opportunities and say, "Okay, it's soapbox time." going to make you guys feel bad mm-hmm. and really you just reported the truth and let the truth do you know for lack of a better way of saying it you let the truth do what it do mm-hmm. you know and so they kind of they kind of went with the flow there so i think it was a pretty good overall i liked it and yeah i i, I do think it went well and and i really want to thank again mark davidson um for inviting me the guy who was on before me it was an interview um with a, a realtor, a real estate investor who was incredibly successful, was an older guy, yeah. you know, near his retirement, running a you know a giant company, and you know one of the things he said was even he was worried about the political climate, yeah, that, and he's not like he didn't sound like he was like you know a liberal guy or anything, he but did not sound liberal <laughs> at all, <laughs> but. But he was like, you know, we've gotten to the point where no matter how crazy your ideas might be, there's someone who's going to agree with yes. them because yeah. you can get into a bubble and there's too much what they called overvalidating yes. going on. And I dropped a reference to overvalidating in in my own presentation. Uh, so I, I really applaud Mark Davidson's um, courage for bringing his customers in and then having someone completely undervalued validate them you know yeah. I mean, tell them the the opposite narrative um of of what they hear every day perhaps my hope is that it'll be effective that yeah. it really will cause at least a few of the decision makers in these big companies to say okay let's re let's re-envision something let's do something different so and i think i think it'll be okay for everyone as long as we're able to you know have the courage to contradict people a little bit um to not get in those bubbles, and when we when we do have a contrary opinion, to really try to be respectful in a way that people will hear it, yeah. uh, and not like be shrill. Uh, yeah, that's my little soapbox. <laughs> I'm not reporting. That was my opinion. Yeah. So what's new? What else we got? So um, next week, or um, so next podcast, we will have Rasan Muhammad, yes. who is a fascinating guy. He's going to talk about gentrification as seen from the point of view of the street dealer. Yeah, that's that is the next podcast. We yes. are going to we're going to be launching a new series of pods within this series called "Cut Out Things That Were Left Out" or point of views that were left out or cut out from our last two documentaries. Things that we did not talk about in the film that we should talk about, but that we just didn't have time yeah it's good stuff man um speaking of good stuff i always want to bring up something special something near and dear to me and that's uh comic books and so netflix uh now has luke cage uh the second season and i binged most of it i am uh not proud of myself but (laughs) i I watched 10 episodes straight (laughs) i neglected family and work and everything were starving (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, it, it, you know, it, it took some some damage, but hey, I can repair that. So I've got two more episodes left, but it's great. It's a really, 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 really great season. Started off kind of slow, but I, I recommend anyone binge it and, and sit down and watch it. I think the respectful thing to do is to binge it. 
to be, you know, at least <laughs> to be respectful. Yeah, at least go six episodes in. You can if you, you can do it break. for Game of Thrones. Yeah, you can. You can do this. Just yeah, just six episodes in, then you can have a restroom break. You know that type of thing. Now, can you tell us a little bit? I mean, you're wearing a Black Panther shirt mm-hmm. at this moment. Yeah, and we and we talked about when Black Panther came out that you were actually a Luke Cage fan. You had a Luke Cage shirt when we were yeah. talking about Black. So now, to me, there's is there a distinction there when you when you're watching or reading the those two different storylines because they're both black heroes, right? But one is African and one is African American. Yeah, and that's a big distinction in my mind. Yeah. And, and, and to be honest with you, and there were two different writers because uh, the initial writer of Black Panther was a white man. And um, and as it's passed down, like uh, Coates ha- writes Black Panther now, mm-hmm. and he's one of the greatest writers uh, mm-hmm. of our time. Um, what was it, the Eight Years of Power book that he has out? I can't think of it. But he's a really brilliant writer mm-hmm. who writes for the New York Times and everything, where when they tried to relaunch Luke Cage, it was just written by a staff you know, a staff mm. writer, no mm. one special. No and, celebrity And writer. the storylines were kind of weak. And, and the difference between Luke Cage is that he's hero for hire. Like, he is meant and designed to just be Harlem's hero or be a localized hero that can team up with other people. Mm. And so um, he's not, a, it's not a spiritual thing. It's like he's, a, it was a science experiment, and now he's protecting this community, you know, that he landed in. Where with Black Panther, this spiritual thing uh, overtakes him that gives him his special abilities. He's an Avenger, where eventually Luke Cage becomes an Avenger, but that's after Avengers die off and all these other things happen. And, you know, it, the storylines always inter- intermingle. But um, but is there, is there a different, do you get a different cultural oh, yeah. experience yeah. there? Or is that just, I mean, it's just fun, you know? I mean, it's, Yeah, that's all it, it is. Yeah, 100% it's just, it's just 100% like, hey, here's the American black hero. Mm. Here's the hero that is world. And, mm-hmm. yeah, and they do not do well with, in my opinion, just my opinion, they do a beautiful job of showing Africa mm-hmm. as this land that if you don't see it, you don't know what it is, mm-hmm. they paint a beautiful picture. Mm-hmm. You know what Harlem looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they it's still... A beautiful e- place. Yeah, <laughs> even with the new Harlem, they still paint gentrified harlem mm-hmm. and brooklyn and all these other things because the falcon is in harlem as well and so they they paint harlem in these kind these newer comics as still having these underlying issues but prettier with a prettier background so mm-hmm. it's like it's still kind of an odd thing but yeah they are two totally separate fields you get two totally different fields mm. yeah so so what you what should we watch for with this new season I think the key thing to watch for is is looking at the uh, the jokes, the subtle jokes, like even the market. Like you could see where they they make a few marketing jokes. Like as far as um, they just show Luke Cage now being this big brandable thing. Mm-hmm. So they have like sports references in there where all of a sudden he's trying out for the Jets, and <laughs> you know like all these different things, which was is what would happen in real life. If a hero popped up, they would find a way to try to market sure. yeah, him. That's true. Nike was in negotiation with them. Right. And, you know, like all these different things pop up. Uh, T-shirts, people are selling bootlegs of, their, of his fights, you know, <laughs> on the streets. And so 
I think that was the part that was enjoyable to me was the attention to those little details. And then if you know the comics, there's a lot of small underlying jokes mm. that are in there, you know, in between where um, you, you'll get the references every now and then. So, yeah. And just last but not least, in terms of your attire, you're also wearing some classic yeah. Marvel Comics Vans, vans, yeah. vans, vans. Yeah, vans just released a whole line of uh, of Marvel uh, apparel. So it's like they've got Black Panther shoes, uh, Thor shoes, all of them. My daughter brought me the one with all the mini faces on it. Yeah, the of faces the, of the Avengers, right? Yeah, and Spider Man is on there. Yeah, and so and like, they're the old school drawings. The, yeah, not, these are like from the sixties drawings. Yeah, and I don't want to get them dirty, but it's like, yeah. but I, but I also like a little kid want to wear them every day. So, like, I'm finding reasons to put these on. Like, I'm wearing a suit and, like, hey, hey, does this match my watch? Like, no. <laughs> you know, so, like, you know, it, it, it is what it is. But I, I will be wearing these until they, uh, I can't wear them anymore <laughs> until it's, it looks bad. Like, my favorite thing is the anklet says Marvel on it. Oh, yeah. Like, nice. that is, that's sweet. The, you know, those, that's the first thing that goes bad in a pair of shoes. I would have loved to have worn those. When I was 12, if they were, I mean, not that I wouldn't wear them now, yeah. but I'm saying when I was 12, I would have like, oh, it, I would have shot somebody for those. Yeah. Like <laughs> and, and my my child, like my 10 year old, he's like, no, it's no way in the world I would be caught dead in like superhero <laughs> shoes. And it's like, yeah. So, but, but when you're an adult, you're like you, you're you're above it all. You know, it's like you can you can go back to your childhood and wear stuff. Yes. That just you don't care anymore. It's a conversation starter. If nothing else, it gets conversation started. They see it and they feel comfortable and it gets me beyond the I don't know if he's a scary black guy thing. And like so we, we get into good conversation. So I use it as a tool. I'm using them as a tool. That's why I'm going to wear them until they're filthy. Right on. So. All right. That's our show. And we will see you or hear you will hear from us. Yeah. Again. Yes, you will. Maybe that should be our exit line. <laughs> yeah. Our, yeah. You will hear from us again. Yeah, does that, that <laughs> he's giving me a face like nah. It might, yeah. We're, we're trying out different things. We'll see. That's it. That's what it is. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> All right.